we're establishing the industry of decarbonized flight, not setting up the industry of SAF. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show that's high on the idea of flying the friendly skies in a more sustainable way. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and CEO of Technica Communications and the founder of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. If you're a frequent listener to the show and you haven't given us a review, we invite you to take a moment today and give us some feedback. Just, you know, drop us a few stars. Five would be great. Also, if you're gaining value from this information and using it out there in the world, we ask that you become a Patreon member and support us more directly. And thank you to Resource Labs for having us on the network. Now, today's show focuses on the power of sustainable aviation fuels to partially decarbonize flights and do it faster than waiting for electric or hydrogen planes to gain certification. This episode picks up where Season 2, Episode 3 left off. That's when we talked to Aviation Week's Graham Warwick about sustainable aviation fuels, also known as SAFs, and how airlines are addressing sustainability more broadly. If you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you check it out, and we'll put a link for it in the show notes. Now, the reason we're focusing on SAFs is that globally, Aviation makes up roughly 2.1% of all human-induced CO2 emissions. Now, that might not sound like a lot, and, you know, certainly there are other sectors like electricity and heat that produce substantially more CO2. But as those and other sectors like agriculture, ground transportation, as they advance through the energy transition, they're going to reduce their emissions. So the percentage of aviation emissions is going to increase. So the industry has an informal goal of getting to net zero by 2050. And most aircraft manufacturers and airlines generally have this 2050 goal in their flight plan. Might be a little sooner, might be a little later. And the certification for these planes and getting planes large enough to take long haul flights where the highest amount of carbon emissions are occurring, that's going to take some time. So that's where the SAFs market comes in. Sustainable aviation fuels. It has been developing for decades. And here's a quick rundown. In 2008, Virgin Atlantic had the first plane to run on SAF fuels. Then in 2016, United became the first airline to in introduce SAFs to general business operations in Los Angeles. Three years later, in 2019, 250,000 flights flew on some level of sustainable aviation fuel. Then two years after that, SAFs tripled globally to 300 million liters. That's the production. And then it tripled again just a year later to 600 million in 2023. That year, 2023, was also the year that two companies claimed to be the first to fly a transatlantic flight solely on SAFs. And they did it about a week apart. So Virgin Atlantic flew a Boeing 787 from London Heathrow to New York City's JFK airport. And, but they did that a week after 
Gulfstream flew a G-600 19-seat aircraft from uh, Savannah, Georgia, to London's um, Farnborough Airport, which is actually southwest of London. So I think Gulfstream wins the day on this first transatlantic flight, if you're doing it by the dates. Uh, Gulfstream used SAFs produced by World Energy, which is a company that was the world's first producer of sustainable aviation fuel. So we caught up with their founder and CEO, Gene Gibolis, to learn how the SAFs market is taking off and when we can expect it to get to cruising altitude. So sustainable aviation fuels are fuels that are derived from renewable resources that displace fossil fuels, and in the process of doing that, reduce the carbon impact of the act of flying. And so typically today, they are made of uh, used cooking oil, animal fats, or vegetable oils. These are early days in the development of sustainable aviation fuels. There are other technologies that are in uh, earlier stage development that will allow us to make fuels uh, from a whole bunch of other things, uh, none of which will be fossil-based. And so when sustainable aviation fuels are being used for propulsion in aviation, how does that work? What happens inside the engine? Yeah, so the, the actual fuel itself... Uh, performs very similarly to fossil-based jet fuel. It burns a, a, a bit cleaner. Uh, it has lower particulate matter in the emissions. It actually uh, contributes to uh, the reduction of of um, contrails, which are the concentrated little cloud bits that come from behind airplanes. Basically, the propulsion of sustainable aviation fuels is the equivalent of the propulsion of traditional fossil jet. The big difference is that in sustainable aviation fuels, the life cycle emissions, that is the energy that it takes to produce energy, is much lower in sustainable aviation fuels. And so sometimes people hear that the, the, the fuel coming out of the exhaust of sustainable aviation fuel also emits carbon. And, and so uh, people think, well, if they're both emitting carbon, aren't they the same? No, they're not. Because much of the carbon emissions of any fuel is uh, based on the carbon that is emitted and the energy that is used to create that fuel. And in those characteristics, known as life cycle characteristics, sustainable aviation fuel is dramatically better. So I want to be clear about this um, this term life cycle emissions. And you explained that the vast majority of emissions that are coming from um, the production and use of jet fuel actually happen in the transport of that, the, the manufacture of that fuel and the transport of that fuel to the airport. Correct. And um, when the SAFs are burned in the engine of the airplane, they are still creating emissions, correct? There's still CO2 emissions that come out of the airplane because it's burning SAFs. Yep. Okay, correct. Okay. So then um, now are those emissions less or more than uh, what emissions might come out of an airplane if it was just burning jet fuel? 
arguably they're marginally less because it's a more complete combustion and and but marginally so not not significantly one way or the other uh it is lower in particulate matter there's some dynamics of what's what's happening in the fuel that are marginally better but i you know nobody should hang their hat on that either way it's 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 virtually identical Okay, so it's like they cancel each other out at the airplane emissions, at the tailpipe, if you will. And the benefit is created uh, in the supply chain leading up to the flight. That's right. Thank you. I think people get confused around that aspect of of the sustainable aviation fuel market. and And they feel like it's just you're creating like at best a carbon neutral experience because the carbon has been collected by the plant and then emitted again by the plane, right? It's the difference between uh, atmospheric emissions and uh, localized emissions. When we're talking about the different types of materials that are used to create sustainable aviation fuel, are we essentially talking about like this is a biofuel essentially for aviation? Is it is that a way people can think about it, or is it different? Abs- absolutely, yeah. T- the, today, the fuels that we're making are, are advanced biofuels. To further um, that outline and color it in a little bit, if you will, World Energy and Gulf Stream recently completed this transatlantic flight from Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, specifically to London. And it was flown entirely on aviation fuel. And uh, you cut the life cycle emissions of the CO2 by 70%, which is pretty impressive. Can you give us some more information about what happened during this flight and how this came about? Yeah, the, the, the origin of it is we've been supplying Gulfstream for many, many years. And um, Gulfstream is keenly aware that their, uh, that their customer base needs to find a way to fly in a private aircraft from point A to point B in a more sustainable way, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism to uh, for the, to of the people that fly in in private aircraft. There's uh, a, a subset of the population that thinks nobody should fly in, a, in private aircraft and that it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and it's you know we all should be in the in the in the same airplanes going to the same places and so forth, which. Uh, <laughs> well, it's easy. It's easy to pick on. It's easy to pick on people who take private aircraft because they're labeled as like elitist or it's luxury and, you know, it's frivolous. Right. But like you said, like there's security issues. And um, I always find it funny, like every year, about a month before COP, um, a bunch of articles will come out about how everybody's going to fly, fly privately to a climate event, right? And like, it's like clockwork every year. Let's pick on everybody for how they get to cop. And, um, you know, security is a tremendous aspect of these meetings. And like you said, people, like they have to fly private if they're of a certain um, subset of the population that, you know, has an incredible security detail. They absolutely do, and that's uh, that's going to continue. Private aircraft manufacturers like Gulfstream are well aware that they have to deal with the criticism, deal with the problems, that their customer base has to deal with the criticism, deal with the problems. So this flight 
this Gulfstream flight uh, between Savannah and the UK uh, was done with 100% uh, renewable, sustainable aviation fuel. And there wasn't one drop of fossil jet fuel on, on that plane. And uh, it was done to demonstrate that this can be done safely and can really provide a, um, a, a picture of where we can get to, that this can be done. Not that it's, it's not commonly done today. It's not one particular flight from point A to point B is not the answer. But being able to say, look, there are ways to be able to get there, and we all need to be working together on those ways. We and they thought that that was an important message to send. And so we did that. And, you know, it was a success. And we demonstrated that. Uh, a lot of our work has to be about creating a picture of what we can get to. Uh, people have a hard time with the abstract. You do, I do, we all do. And so we want to demonstrate that things can be done. Uh, and so that was what that was all about. I, I wrote a piece coming back from COP to exactly the point you made. There were almost 100,000 people at COP this year. And I wrote a piece about all of those articles that you correctly referenced. And so would we have been better off doing COP by Zoom? And the answer is absolutely not. This is the world's, arguably, humanity's biggest challenge. Are we going to solve humanity's biggest challenge by Zoom, we are not. The only chance <laughs> we possibly have is together, <laughs> right? You're, and you're not going back to hang out for Christmas with your parents uh, over Zoom. You are not going to uh, you know, hug your loved ones over Zoom. We are going to fly. <laughs> Look, we are. I mean, I don't know. There's some family members that maybe I'd want to be on a Zoom holiday call with them and be like, I'm sorry. Uh, my bandwidth is getting really bad. I, I don't, if I drop off the call, it's it's not, you know, it's just my bandwidth. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And probably some meetings like cop, the cop that fall into the same category. But <laughs> I mean, I think I think you're right. It's this um, we are we are beings that evolve to be in the same space as each other. And a lot can be accomplished on a subconscious level when you're as when you build relationships with people in person. And yes, you can accomplish some stuff on Zoom and on, on virtual uh, experiences. And that's great. And there's probably going to be arguments that can be made when we have VR uh, more prominently um, that it's, you know, closer to being in person with somebody, but you can't replace that. But I am working on ways that we can all get there. And this is important. There's actually, as much as we're kind of pointing out the absurdity here, this is a really important thing because there is a market for decarbonizing aviation, whether it's in pi private aircraft or folks going to conferences uh, like Davos or COP or whatever. Um, and that's a super important early indicator market. And if we can give them legitimate, traceable, decarbonized aviation, not just sustainable aviation fuel, but decarbonized aviation, 
they'll buy it and they are buying it. And so what then happens? Those that early demand gets to, oh, okay, so now there's some supply because we're fill, filling that early demand. And oh, okay, so now we can have more demand and more supply and more demand. And that's and that's how this service of a decarbonizing flight ultimately gets off the ground. Well, so you mentioned traceability and I wanna get to this point. How do you how do you ensure the traceability of your feedstocks when you're what, that you use in the production of your sustainable aviation fuel? So this is a really critical part of standing up the service of decarbonized flight. I'll get into that in a little bit more. But if we can't substantiate and substantiate down to the last digit how we're decarbonizing, that it's legitimate, that it's authentic, this is going nowhere. And so we've been working for years. We've brought it, brought in a group out of uh, RMI, formerly known as Rocky Mountain Institute. These were real thought leaders in decarbonizing flight. We brought them in to effectively set up an ecosystem. Nobody's going to take our word for it. We've got a profit motive. So we've got to operate within an ecosystem of third-party verification and third-party registries where others have the, have the obligation to make sure that what we're saying is right. So we have to, already today, we have to trace everything we do for the state of California from its origin. We have to have uh, documentation from the, from the origin all the way through to when did that product get put in a rail car? When did that rail car arrive at our facility? When did it get taken out of the facility and produced into uh, sustainable aviation fuel? When did it then go back into a pipeline system and arrive in, in LAX? When did all of that happen? How did it happen? And based on standards set by international bodies, what was the carbon impact of all of that happening? And we have to do that for every drop of fuel we make or it's of no use. But this is the interesting part. Once you do it, you now have a liquid fuel that it does what its corollary does in a decarb, you know, in a lower carbon fashion. And so the, the real important innovation here, and it won't, it'll seem a little goofy at first, uh, and it did to me too, was how do you de take, decouple the decarbonization piece from the propulsion piece? And if you can do that, they don't have to be sold to the same customer at the same place. So if we've got all of this documentation of the difference between the, you know, the fossil base uh, standard material and its alternative, then we can find that delta and quantify that delta. That delta can effectively be tokenized. It can be then sold anywhere. So we can decarbonize a flight from point A to point B, wherever, from wherever to wherever, to whichever customer. What you all are doing uh, with tracking, tracing and tracking the carbon emissions, and as you said, decoupling, um, that's different. And that's going to be a new concept for a lot of people. So let's, let's slow it down and and step by step through this okay so let's first describe the difference between an offset and an inset so an offset is a bunch of different things but it's often um uh an agreement not to cut down 
trees in a forest somewhere or to deploy cook stoves in a village somewhere, or there's a whole bunch of different ways. And so a lot of these are really good projects. Probably at least as many aren't. But an inset as opposed to an offset is in the aviation sector. It's traceable absolutely through a fuel tank. It is traceable in the sector itself. It's not limited to aviation. It could be done in any sector. Uh, but it it's in the sector itself. It's not a tree. It's not a cook stove. It's not anything other. It's in. It's decarbonizing the the overall emissions in that sector, and then by by taking that reduction and tokenizing it by giving it a, effectively a credit, then that credit can be sold separately from the physical molecule, and that which seems kind of simple is hugely powerful from an economic point of view because it allows you to efficiently deliver the product to the right customer in the right place at the right price. Otherwise, you're moving physical, sustainable aviation fuel all over the place. But then the credit is sold separately. And and so by doing that, you can unleash markets. And this applies more broadly than just aviation. That's how This is how we're going to decarbonize steel, how we're going to decarbonize cement. It's, a, it's how we're going to make the hydrogen economy work. It's really, really potent because we're not wasting carbon or money moving things around in the name of improvement. We're doing improvement, improvement as efficiently and as authentically as possible. We're not doing things for press releases. We're not doing things to make things look good. We are doing things to actually make authentic progress. And then my natural follow-up question to that is, with an inset, is the airline uh, who is flying that plane, are they reporting a reduction in their own emissions through the use of the sustainable aviation fuel at the same time that the hypothetical consulting firm is taking the, the inset reduction in their own emissions from the same flight. Because I can see how there could be a misconception of like a feeling of there being double dipping. Like two entities are claiming the emissions reduction. And yes, they're all, they're both benefiting from that emissions reduction. Can they both claim that emissions reduction with this inset model or it feels like there might be a, a doubling up of the reporting? Excellent question. Uh, the answer is no, they can't claim the same benefit. You can't get one benefit twice. But the way it normally works is if they're accounting for their normal emissions, never mind sustainable aviation fuel, uh, the airline has got a scope one emission because they buy fuel, they consume that fuel in the act of providing their service. And they, they have scope one emissions associated with that. The consulting firm that are flying people around on that aircraft is getting a scope three emission. So that's how the normal accounting goes. So if you displace that normal uh, fossil jet with sustainable aviation fuel, the same accounting works. 
So the scope one emission can be taken, the benefit can be taken by the airline, and the scope three benefit can be taken by the consulting firm. But they can't take the same credit. They can only take the credit that they would have otherwise been hit with otherwise, and then displace or inset the difference. I mean, so what we've established is that both entities can take their scope one and their scope three emissions benefits within their um, their reporting. And but at the same time, you're also tokenizing the inset and selling it uh, separately. Only to those two entities. So if a consulting firm flew its people on a SAF um, propelled airplane, they then wouldn't need to purchase the insets because they're getting the scope three emission benefit directly. So you're then selling, you're selling the tokenization of the inset to an additional participant in the market of aviation generally until such time as SAFs are more prominent in the market. Yeah, I think what you just said is if if an airline buys in Los Angeles our fuel and they just take the physical fuel and they take the associated scope one benefit, can they then tokenize and sell on the scope three benefit? And the answer is yes. Thank you for taking the time to explain all that because I want to make sure we get it right. Uh, the other question I have for you is what does the future hold for SAFs when you look at five and 10 years out? What do you think we can expect? Well, I think, you know, that, that time period that I was just talking about here in the next couple of years um, really starts to take root uh, five to 10 years out. And you start to see what what we call first generation uh, SAF really starts to get produced in, in greater and greater quantity. The world can, produces enough of the feedstocks that go into uh, first generation SAFs to do about 15 to 20% of the total consumption today of fossil jet fuel around the world before you start bumping up to there's just not enough feedstock. So long before we get to that point, we have to say, okay, what does this evolve into uh, beyond first generation? And first generation is what we produce in, in Los, Los Angeles and what we're going to be building in, in Houston. And it, it is what the industry norms will be set on. It's because it's the most uh, uh, proven, most able technology that we can produce today. There's other stuff that's pretty interesting, pretty promising that depends on green hydrogen production, which we have virtually none of in the world today, although we're working on it. Uh, requires carbon capture to exist in a much bigger way so that we can take green hydrogen and process that with captured carbon and produce sustainable aviation fuel from those fuels in, in concert with each other. But those are much earlier stage developments. And we will only get there with the next generation stuff if we can build the demand on the first generation. So as we as we see this sequence out, like in any technology, things get better. You know, the automobile is way better than the horse and buggy now. You know, the, the cell phone is way better than the loom now, right? Uh, cell phone, uh, the smartphone. Uh, so in, in all technology, you have to start somewhere and it has to evolve and it has to keep going. So, you know, in, in five years, we will have established the norms of the industry. In 10 years, we will have seen a significant supply response to the rapidly increasing demand from all kinds of sectors. If your consultant shows up 10 years from now 
from big name consulting firm X, and they have not decarbonized their flight, you're going to wonder what the heck they're doing. Like, of course they have. Uh, and there will be lots and lots of sectors where that just becomes, of course, that's what you do. Uh, and if you don't, it'll only be noticeable for the absence of you doing it, not for you doing it. It will become the norm. It will become the responsible thing to do. If you're going to COP 38, not 28, you're going to decarbonize your flight to COP 38. Of course you are. There's no question. So 10 years out, there's just a lot more that's uh, just built into the economy. If you can, you do. You know, are you going to make every fa family flying to Disney do it? No. But if you're in sectors where you can decarbonize your flight, that's the only responsible thing to do. And that's what triggers the whole, you know, gets the whole chicken and egg thing going of innovation. Earthlings, even though SAFs have been around for decades, the industry is now only starting to take off. And it's exciting to see these 100% SAF flights from World Energy and others be successful. And of course, there's a lot to work out in terms of business models and supply chain and adoption. And, you know, the insets that Gene was talking about today, that's a new concept for a lot of us. And so I look forward to that element of the business model becoming more prevalent over time. It's, it's fascinating to think about how that could be leveraged for different types of hard to abate sectors like steel. Um, but if you think about today, SAF still only account for approximately 0.1% of the total jet fuel used worldwide. And about 60 companies, um, including British Airways, KLM, Delta Airlines, uh, United, and uh, Virgin Atlantic, have all committed to uh, working towards making SAFs 10% of aviation fuel by 2030. So we have a lot of ground to cover in the next couple of years. So what can we do? Obviously, the cheaper and more available suppliers can make the fuel, the more widely it will be adopted. And, you know, currently the cost is about 50% higher than jet fuel. So there's a lot of ground to cover there. And I think what we as citizens can do is ask our representatives to subsidize the costs of SAFs to help get this industry to the economies of scale it needs. And, you know, right now, currently, the U.S. and Europe are providing some level of support for the industry, but obviously, at a 50% uh, price difference, more is needed. And I think we could fly those airlines that I listed above. Obviously, I'm not endorsing them, but if you want to support companies that are moving in the right direction, you can vote with your dollars. And, you know, with our representatives, we can let them know we've got their back if they want to support these subsidies uh, and come up with more. Or how about we just reduce some of the fossil fuel subsidies that are out there? Hmm, that's an idea. Our Restoring Faith in Humanity segment takes us to Japan, where former Twitter user with the handle Calm 
Hamada posted a story about his dad's friend who was traveling back to his hometown with his wife's ashes. So this man boarded the airplane and uh, put his wife's ashes in the overhead bin and sat down like you normally would on a flight with any type of baggage that you have. A flight attendant was tipped off to this special situation by a check-in staff member and uh, the attendant approached the man and said, the seat next to you is empty. Would your traveling companion like to sit down? The flight attendant then took the bag out of the bin for him, put it on the seat beside him, connected the seatbelt, and brought refreshments for both passengers during the flight. The man told a newspaper, we were able to have a final trip together, just the two of us. The fact that the person at the check-in uh, was able to relay this message to the flight attendants and then this special seating arrangement was made reminds us that when we communicate, work together, and then share those results with others, these special memorable moments can have ripple effects and touch thousands of lives on this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. Hey listeners, this show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.